I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Looking to upgrade your outdoor space? Well, today we're getting seriously creative as we meet great designers past and present. We'll be hearing from influential garden designer Arnie Maynard. It's just nice to be able to go out and garden bend over and pick some wild strawberries and eat them. And gardens need to do that. You need to interact with a garden. And as part of our Hidden Horticulturist series, where we showcase unsung heroes of the gardening world, we'll be learning about landscape architect William Kent, master of the natural gardening style, with historian Wesley Kerr. He's well worth studying because he's so influential and has created so much beauty, so much pleasure. So there's lots to get inspiration from in this week's Gardening with the RHS, with me, Fiona Davison. For many of us, grass lawns are central components of any garden layout, and now's a great time to give your lawn a little loving care. So to find out how to maintain a lawn that's green in both a physical and environmental sense, let's start in the wonderful company of one of my favourite RHS advisors, Nikki Barker. Hello, Fiona. How are you? Very good. So we've got a real topical set of questions today. Lawns. What right now are some of the top tasks we ought to be doing with our lawns? Well, probably the first thing you should be looking at with your lawn at the moment is maybe giving it the first mow of the year. I certainly haven't mown mine yet, but it is looking (laughs) like it does need it. So if you haven't done your first mow yet, then do that. And set the height of your cut quite high for the first time that you're mowing your lawn in the year because you don't want to cut that new growth down too low. You want to encourage it. So in our recent low carbon show, we learnt that mowing lawns can release quite a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. Can you give us some alternative lawn management tips to help us? Yeah, certainly. Obviously, lots of people do have petrol mowers, but then there's lots of alternatives to that. You can use an electric mower. It's still using resources, but it's not emitting the carbon emissions in the same way. Mow your lawn less often Mm. and you're going to really be helping just by doing that. But if you've got a small lawn, there's lots of really good manual push mowers that you can use. The lots of lawns nowadays aren't very big, so you don't need to have a petrol mower. You can just have one that you push They're usually cylinder mowers as well, so they give a really good cut and they work really, really well and they're much cheaper. 
what's really mm. great about them is there's much left to go wrong as well because you haven't <laughs> got an engine that's going to need servicing and, and all of those sorts of things. And it's good exercise that way as well. And what about if you're feeling really radical and didn't want to have a grass lawn at all but still wanted a green effect? There is lots of things that you can do. So you can just encourage those lawn weeds. So things like clover, dandelions, daisies, a duga, which is wild bugle, all of those things can make a really good tapestry lawn without having grass. So if you let the weeds take over in some places and you can start off with a small area and see how it goes, then actually you really are reducing the need to mow down to possibly two or three times a year. I've certainly got an area of my lawn where I do that. It's fabulous because it takes almost no effort whatsoever. And with our weather getting drier, what are some ways we can help repair our lawns and even stop them getting damaged in the first place? Well, the problem with lawn suffering from drought, which is often what will be coming up soon, is that after a wet winter, they're quite tired. They've maybe been waterlogged. So you could look at certainly if you've got very wet areas of your lawn now, just go out with a garden fork and aerate them, put the fork in the lawn, wiggle it about a bit. And actually that creates holes in the lawn where the water can drain away a bit better because lawns tend to become very compacted because we walk on them and we use heavy mowers on them so actually that helps to prevent the water draining away because they become compacted so if you can just get a bit of aeration going with a garden fork at this time of year in the worst areas then that will help and make a difference but also You just need to look at why they've maybe got damaged in the first place. And again, that can come back to, are you mowing too close? During dry spells, and we get some very hot dry periods, often in spring now as well, don't we? If you mow your lawn too close, then actually you're weakening the grass and you're making the root system weaker. So if you raise the cut height, the grass in your lawn will be more resilient to drought. And also the blades of the grass then trap moisture if they're longer. So it keeps a moisture level there for the grass. So changing how you mow, how often you mow and raising the cut height really makes a difference to the resilience of the grass in your lawn. So I think lots of people might worry that letting our weeds grow and letting nature take care of itself might make the garden look a little bit uncared for. So are there ways we can manage with mowing the lawn less but still get that sense our garden's cared for? Well, what you could do is start off with a small area and that might be towards the edge of a border. So you could still edge your lawn. So there's a clear definition between the lawn and the border, but the lawn has a section in it that's clover and daisies, all sorts of things that you leave. And then you could let that expand if you like it. Or you could just mow a path round section so that it's almost like a another section of your garden within the lawn that's distinctly different it's not all grass and you look like you're doing it on purpose which you are which you are (laughs) Um, but you can still make a defined edge between the lawn and the border and you can get this tapestry effect and it actually is really lovely to look at especially in the spring when Mm. the daisies start to come up as well and it, it can be really important for pollinators but you can make it look as if you've designed it that way, especially with the use of a path that you've maybe mown slightly lower than the rest of the lawn that you're leaving to attract more of these lawn weeds that we now want to have in our lawn. 
Thanks, Nikki. That was great. I really learned a lot. Thank you. Lovely to speak to you, Fiona, and hopefully you'll take on board some of my lawn tips and you'll have a fantastic tapestry lawn. And if you want to take a more naturalistic approach to your grass this year, have a listen to a previous podcast episode called Wildlife in Winter, where we spoke to wildlife gardener Jenny Steele about how to create a wildflower meadow. And we're going to leave lawns behind now, because a lawn isn't a big part of the next space we're going to hear about, created by award-winning garden designer Arnie Maynard. One of his most recent projects uses raised beds, a mix of formal elements and medicinal plants to create a truly multifunctional suburban space. The Garden Magazine's editor-at-large, Chris Young, spoke to Arnie to understand just how this plot came to be. Arnie, it's great to have you in the magazine, but also have you on the podcast. So thank you very much for your time. I think it's probably fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're normally known for probably some larger gardens. So the one that we're featuring in this April issue of the magazine, is that a bit of a departure? It's a North London suburban garden. Is that slightly different from what you would normally do? It's different to what we normally do at this moment in time. I started by doing a lot of London gardens. And it started with the smallest gardens you can imagine. Slowly, I became more and more known for doing larger country gardens. And and we still do carry out a number of smaller projects, and I really enjoy them. But now we are designing much larger gardens and historical estates. And, and I love it. I love the fact that we have a lot of room within our landscapes to create different areas within the garden and different disciplines. A lot of what we're doing is designed to be gardened. Well, that's really interesting you say that, actually, because obviously it's clear from the article Claire Foster wrote for us about this garden that the clients were keen gardeners. They wanted to work biodynamically, for example, and that they're interested in herbs and vegetables and things. So I was going to ask you, was that a challenge or an attraction? But it sounds like it seems quite normal for a lot of your clientele to actually want to use their gardens, to grow in their gardens. I would say that most of my clients, if they don't start off as keen gardeners, they end up as very keen gardeners, which is really lovely. (laughs) It's very rewarding to be able to embark on a journey with a client that's never gardened. And after a year, they're really starting to know plants and they're really understanding what the garden can deliver for them. And, And I think that's become a much easier journey in a way because so many more people now, when I first started, people didn't really garden. They wanted a garden, but it was very remote, whereas now people actively want to grow vegetables. They actively want to grow their own cut flowers. They they environmentally want to really look after their surroundings. And so people are much more engaged with their gardens than they used to be. So as we're saying, this is a, a North London suburban garden. The photography by Richard Bloom makes it look as splendid as I'm sure that it is to be inside it. But it's a good sized garden. It's about 15 by 33 metres. But you've employed a lot of visual tricks to make it look bigger. Can you just describe some of the key things that you did to increase the feeling of the size and the depth of the garden? One of the things that clients showed me right at the beginning when we met them the first time was a lovely little film which featured Tasha Tudor, who was a children's book illustrator. Her garden was not terribly large, but it had so much movement and layers within the garden that it felt really much bigger than it is. And that it was that essence from that little movie that they showed me. The first thing they showed me are things that they said, this is our inspiration. 
that really informed the design process of wanting a garden that had journeys through it. And Tasha Tudor's garden had lots of different journeys and her landscape undulated. So she had all these amazing peonies and aquilegias. And so here I wanted to create a garden for my clients that had that same essence, that same mysteriousness and layering that Tasha Tudor's garden had. And so what we wanted to do was to divide the garden up into areas. Vegetable growing was a really important thing, but the clients really particularly liked the sort of meadow-like feel of Tasha Tudor's garden. So so we started to build our ingredients into the design process. So wanted our flower beds to feel very natural and meadow-like. We wanted a vegetable garden that was productive and also felt quite contemporary because the house had had renovation works and they were very contemporary. We wanted to provide privacy and punctuation, which makes the garden feel bigger. So the sides of the garden have these lovely pleached pear trees. So again, we wanted it to be edible, as much edible as possible. So the pear trees, it's all doyen de commis, and they provide a screening. Once you're in this garden, you're incredibly private. So these screens, these layers that we built, not only are dividing the garden, but they're also vertically dividing the space. Then we have this big yew hedge behind it, which is simple and elegant, but gives it some weight. And then the garden is divided into the productive area with this sort of meadowy tulip and peony garden with these very contemporary core 10 cubes, these raised planted beds that all the vegetables are grown in. And then we further punctuate and divide the garden, not with these strict lines of hedges, but we do it in a very subtle way with placing topiary in the garden. So... I think the thing is that we've created multiple, multiple routes through the garden. And by doing that, it's felt much bigger. So just talking about the planting, there's interest through the year, isn't there, with the planting, where you can view that from the house? I mean, the back of the house is one vast, great big window. And it's a bit like watching a movie when you're in the house. And the film is the garden. You know, there's wildlife in the garden, there are birds. I mean, it's incredible just sitting there watching the garden. The planting's been designed in such a way that there's always something of interest throughout the year. One of the things that I think my gardens are, are known for is that we have a lot of structure, which stays all year. So the hedges that run along the sides, the yew cloud hedges, and then we have the pleached pears that run parallel to the hedges that give structure. So, you know, when they're in flower, they're beautiful, but equally when they're bare and you just see the beautifully pruned knuckles of the pear trees, that has a beauty which is Mm. wonderful. And the topiaries all through the year, they're there, they're there with shapes. In the winter with the low sunlight, you have this amazing playfulness of shadows on the garden that's cast by the topiary and by the espaliered fruit trees. It's an ever-changing garden that we've always something interesting. In the summer, it's absolutely brimming with vegetables. In the spring, it's full of all the tulips. And then after the tulips are finished, there's lots of iris sabiricas. We've tried keeping the planting that flows through between all the vegetable beds very natural and very meadow-like. But it all comes out of a matrix which is evergreen, of scented violets and wild strawberries. So again, the family can go and pick wild strawberries. So so all year, you know, the wild strawberries are semi-evergreen. So it's like an edible lawn, really. And then you have all the lovely violas in there, which smell incredible in the spring. And then you just have the carpet of the green leaves. And we plant through that. So all the tulips, all the peonies, all the iris, the lupins, 
everything in a very cottagey style grows out of this matrix of the strawberry and the viola. It's just nice to be able to go out and garden, bend over and pick some wild strawberries and eat them. And gardens need to do that. You need to interact with a garden. You can read more about Arnie's design in the April issue of The Garden, our monthly magazine for RHS members. And now, as part of our Hidden Horticulturist series, we're going to find out about William Kent, a landscape architect from the 1700s who created a number of influential gardens. Broadcaster, historian and horticulturist Wesley Kerr tells us all about him. William Kent, who was born in 1685 and died in 1748, may seem a distant figure, but he's actually one of the most influential people in the whole history of of European and British gardening. He's a kind of Renaissance man. He's a man of all the talents. He's a painter. He's an interior designer. He designs furniture. He's an architect. But William Kent is such a significant figure because he sees so much history in his reign. So this is a period when Britain is changing. So Kent, having been born in 1685, dying in 1748, actually lives through the reigns of seven monarchs. So this is a period when the country is changing massively, when there's great wealth that the aristocracy have had, and they want to put it into their houses, mansions, palaces, landscapes. And William Kent is absolutely the man. So he's able to fulfil the visions of kings and queens, dukes, marquises and earls, when they want to do up their place. So Kensington Palace has these wonderful ceiling paintings by him. But William Kent, he's brilliant at these interiors, but people think he's such a genius, well, we must get him to do garden designs as well. So from 1719 to 1748, William Kent produces an amazing rash of astonishing garden designs where the garden and the house and then the things in the landscape, statues, grottos, clumps of trees, eye-catchers on the horizon are all integrated in a very elaborate design, but it never looks like a design. It always looks as though it's somehow natural. And quite a lot of these landscapes have survived, quite a lot of the buildings have survived, So he establishes a style called Kentian. Um, You had gardens, places like Blenheim, Hampton Court, all the grand houses, Kensington Palace, which were like straight lines, lots of alleys, straight canals, everything ordered and controlled and manicured. And Kent begins to break away from that. So Kent is the transitional figure that takes us from the Baroque garden with everything ordered and controlled to the freedom of the grand landscape of a capability brown. But Kent does it on a slightly more intimate scale. So there are formal aspects within a Kent garden, but there's a kind of marvellous freeness to his gardens. Kent's gardens, yes, there's the three dimensions. They also create a fourth dimension and they affect you. So they are rather theatrical, his gardens. So his most famous garden in London is at somewhere called Chiswick House in West London, which is open to the public. So it's a mixture of wild landscape and a lake, which is in fact a diverted river, but it's not a straight lake, it's not a lake with straight edges, it's a lake that appears to be a pond. But there are four more features in the landscape. There is an exhedra with a series of statues in a semicircle, 
there are some straight yew avenues. So that's quite a famous landscape, and it's got all the Kentian features of the highly treed ornamental landscape, lawns, borrowed landscapes. It appears to be somehow much bigger than it is, partly because you've got these framed views. In Kensington Gardens, there's a marvellous building, my favourite garden in all the royal parks where I'm a trustee, called Queen Caroline's Temple, which is sort of three little arcades, with one of them higher in the middle, like a little pavilion, right in the heart of Kensington Gardens, and it creates its own atmosphere, it has its own little landscape which Kent would have designed around it. The most fabulous garden, possibly the most fabulous garden in England, is about 10-15 miles north of Oxford, called Rousham, which William Kent created. He also had a hand in the house interior and exterior. It's open to the public every day, and it is rather like visiting a private house, because you, you put money in an honesty box, and you're able to go through this astonishing landscape. So at Rousham, you've got the stately home, and then you've got lots of features in the garden which appear natural, but which are all in fact designed by William Kent. So you see long horn cattle, and there's the most beautifully designed rill, a rill being a very, very thin stream of water, which goes as directed, and it goes as directed down a hill, down a path with hedges on the either side, which seem natural hedges, but are kind of sort of manicured, because they're probably clipped once a year, the distant hills, which are not in fact on the Rousham estate, but somehow have become part of his borrowed landscape. The statues, I know of no garden which has more impact than William Kent's Rousham. So he's one of the people that in the last 300 years has been most influential in designing the look of Britain. So without knowing about William Kent, you don't really understand the history of English, of British landscapes. I think in the United Kingdom, we have such a powerful horticultural tradition. We've taken in so many gardening styles, and we've also become such trendsetters, and that goes back hundreds of years. So one of the most powerful things in British gardening history is the landscape movement, and the person that brings birth to the landscape movement, which we all know, we've all internalized these landscapes. When you go through the British countryside, so many farmers are almost recreating the gardens of Kent or Brown. So in terms of how Britain looks, how Britain is seen, William Kent is a very, very important figure, a very stylish, imaginative and brilliant man. Wesley will be back with another hidden horticulturist next time. Well, that's it for this episode. For more on all of today's topics, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Next week, the show is shrinking down to explore how to get greenery into even the smallest of spaces. So if you'd like to grow rare ferns from the forest floors of the Andes or carnivorous pitcher plants from the jungles of Borneo, there are loads and loads of species that you would really struggle to grow indoors in a home environment that when you suddenly put in the low light and high humidity environment of a terrarium, becomes super easy to grow. 
We'll be making terrariums, learning about how to grow tiny alpines and gardening with children. But until then, it's goodbye from me, Fiona Davison. Thank you for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.